Thank you, thank you, thank you. Sometime I think I would just like to do a series of messages. I come in cold and I just sing the worship songs and then I get up and preach about the worship songs because they really touch me deeply. Thank you. That was a sweet time of worship. Uh, I wasn't born a pastor. You may not have realized that. I'm a pastor because Jesus changes my life. That doesn't mean that if Jesus changes your life, you're going to be a pastor. I never set out to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a pastor. Jesus just changed my life and changed me into a pastor, I guess. <laughs> but that's my story. And I, you may have noticed I didn't say he changed my life. He changes my life. It's an ongoing conversion. I know we use the word conversion for an event, a real 180 in life. But I continue to make those 180s each and every day. And this conversion, this life changing, is explained in the letter of Ephesians. We are told in the letter of Ephesians that in Christ we have a new identity, a new humanity. We're expecting a baby in our family. I've been in the delivery room. I've seen that baby, that baby alive when it takes its first breath. That is new life. To develop, a baby has to continue to breathe. In Christ, the Holy Spirit is our breath. The Holy Spirit is the power of the resurrection life. Our new humanity in the risen life of Christ, resident in us, ever inspiring us to Christ-likeness, if we breathe, if we breathe, if we breathe. We've been looking at... Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Last week, we saw the impact of breathing in this new life, how it turns our chalky, ashen complexion to a rosy, healthy pink, the very body of Christ alive with a song in our hearts, thanksgiving on our lips, Loving recognition of each other out of loving reverence for Christ. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, and notice all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, and Paul takes up the same 
subject in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul shows us how this new humanity in Christ changes the fundamental structure of society. The fundamental structure of society is the household. What we call, although I haven't heard it said lately, but what we have called more recently the nuclear family. The word nuclear comes not from atomic experiences, it comes from the Latin lux, nux, N-U-X, or nucleus, for core or kernel. But the topic of the household, its relationships and its patterns of discussion goes all the way back to Aristotle. And I only mention Aristotle because the pattern in which Aristotle takes up the subject of the household is followed throughout generations and even taken up by Paul here in chapter 5, verses 22 through 6, verse 9. Aristotle and generations after him speak of the regulation of the household in the ancient world. And I want you to understand that in the ancient world, the regulation of the household was in the hands of one person, the husband, the father, and the master. Paul takes up these same categories here and in Colossians, but there's a huge difference because in society it was a man's world. In the new humanity, it is no longer the man's world. It is the Lord's world. Now the new humanity, this heavenly reality, becomes visible in the household the fundamental component of society, of culture, of life. And Paul can say, as he does in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things that are above. For life ruled from above where Christ is reigning is realized and experienced precisely in the household the life lived in marriage, in parenthood, and in everyday work. There's something more that's new in these household rules, which the 15th century reformer, he who began the Reformation, Martin Luther, called the house Stephan because it referred to the house rules, which has become a common title for this discussion of the household. There's something more that's new in these household rules. Wife, children, and slaves 
are addressed equally with the husband, the father, and the master. What's fitting, what's appropriate, what's expected is not just an obligation of the husband, father, and master. He is now joined by wife, children, and slaves in direct address. In society, this was not the case. All the members of the household in Christ have a new status as members of Christ's body, of his headship. A reciprocal worth and status defined not by a man and his place in society, but by the Redeemer, the risen Christ, a worth and a status set by his own ransom price and affirmed in his resurrection and our newness of life. So let's take a look at the first part of the household code, if you will. Let's look at verses 22 through 33. I'd like to read them for you. And I want to mention something here that you, you wouldn't recognize, but you may recall uh, the last two Sundays, which would be last week and three weeks ago, when we were in chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, we saw that there were grammatically five different statements that were dependent upon being filled with the Spirit. Do you remember me saying that? In other words, verses 19, verse 20, and verse 21 all flow out of being filled with the Spirit. Paul continues right in to verse 22 out of verse 21. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That flows out of the filling of the Spirit. And now I want to read the 22nd verse. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit. And he doesn't use the word there. He just says, so wives to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I read this past week something that seems actually pretty familiar to me from my youth. It was uh, published in 1965, actually May 13th, which I didn't go back and check, but may have been Mother's Day. It was my mother's birthday, May 13th, 1965. Housekeeping Monthly printed The Good Wife's Guide. Plan ahead. This is addressed to the good wives. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious dinner ready when your husband gets home from work. This is a way of letting him know you've been thinking about him and concerned with his needs. Prepare yourself. Put on some makeup. Put a ribbon in your hair. And be fresh-looking. He's been with a lot of Work-weary people, prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash them up, brush their hair, and change their clothes if needed. Remember, they are little treasures, and he would like to see them playing that part. Have a cool or warm drink for him and arrange his pillow and take off his shoes. Over the cooler months, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. After all, to cater to his comfort will bring you immense satisfaction. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Not every man is laughing in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure, his need to relax. Well, I'm glad you can laugh at that because, and I, can, I genuinely laugh at that, because that seems so far removed from my experience, but that was, that was the world <laughs> in which I grew up. It does seem far removed from my experience. It, does it not seem far removed from yours? Sometimes we do say things and we don't hear ourselves talking. But listen, that was 1960, 1965. What was it like in 55 when Paul was writing? How much more the viewpoint then? And you must appreciate it was a far different world, far different. It helps us to see how radical are the things that Paul is writing. And if you immerse yourself in any way in that world, 
you would have an even deeper appreciation of how real it is when I say this new humanity, this new life of ours in Christ is pictured in what Paul is writing to us in ways that are deeper sometimes than we can fully appreciate. In 1970 and 71, I was in my junior and senior year of high school. I considered myself a feminist. Feminism was just this very embryonic kind of movement. And in many ways, it wasn't uh, clearly defined as it perhaps has become etched today. Maybe I just wanted to get close to a girl who was a feminist. Because sometimes my own uh, sense of feminism had to catch up with my notion of being a feminist. You know what I'm saying? Whatever my motivations, I was introduced to new ways of thinking about women that later, as a new believer in Christ, caused me to see both sides, feminist and traditional, not against each other so much, but as beside the Bible. Christ caused me, when I met and looked at Shelley and began to enter into a relationship with her and then to ask her to be my wife, and as we entered into marriage, Christ caused me to see Shelley differently. Feminism, whether you like the term or not, caused me to think differently about women than the the way I had been raised and had been modeled in my own home. And it opened me to see the Bible more fundamentally and practically rather than through the eyes of a traditionalist or a feminist. Feminism didn't indoctrinate me. It did shake me of some of my pretension, and it prompted me to rethink my view of women in the light of Christ and God's Word. Case in point, I grew up in a household where Dad went to work and Mom took care of the household, cooked the meals always, and always washed the dishes. That may seem neither here nor there to you. But I tended to carry those things, that idea of marriage, into my marriage. But yet, thinking about some of the things that I had been, so to speak, challenged to rethink, I thought that I should help out and do the dishes without being asked. I, however, expected praise for my enlightened outlook. I wanted Shelley to say, wow, that is so great. Thank you for being an enlightened man. But when she said nothing, I sulked. Eventually, I brought it up. Eventually. I tried to keep it down. I did. I tried to swallow it and say it doesn't really matter. But I finally brought it up and I said, and you know, I really 
just kind of slip this in there. Did you notice I did the dishes? You, you never mentioned it. And she said, why should I thank you for something that is as much your responsibility as mine? That did not feel good, one bit. <laughs> but she was right. By the way, we are both profuse with our thanksgiving. Our divisions of labor are decided in many respects by nature. For example, Shelley does all the childbearing. By gifting and by strengths, by negotiation and mutual love. There have been times in our marriage when I was more the stay-at-home mom and Shelley supported the family. There is one thing we have yet to change that we would like to change. Shelley would like me to cook more. That, as I said, has yet to happen. And that's largely because I'm a lousy cook. Here's what I want us to appreciate as we look at this passage and think about it. And I will say, by the way, that next Sunday and the Sunday after, and I must add, according to James 4.15, Lord willing. We just never know, do we? But the plan is, is that next Sunday Shelley's going to be here with me, and the Sunday after that she's going to be here with me. We're going to open up our marriage and talk about things in light of couple of the topics that are central here in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 and we think that will be fun and you will have fun because I will be the butt of a lot of what is said. <laughs> I have not been the perfect husband and uh, I am willing to to have myself exposed in those respects. It's easier once you've turned some things around, but also because uh, I'm aware we're all imperfect. James says, confess your sins one to another. It's a sad state of the church that we hide behind appearances and uniforms that don't really reflect who we are, and then we become bifurcated, that is, we become kind of... Uh, schizophrenic. We have two lives at least, and we don't integrate them. And that is at the heart of what Christ is doing when I talk about being changed and converting constantly in Christ, claiming and appropriating his forgiveness. And then that experience of joy in knowing that my right relationship with him is not dependent on my perfection. It's dependent on my faith and my trust. And that engages my perfections and my imperfections, which both can fall short of the grace and the love of God. Some of the most perfect people I know don't show the most grace and love of God. 
Well, that's really what we're talking about here is love, God's love, because love wins when Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord of love. This is not a love that we define by culture's ideas and beliefs about love. We define love by Jesus Christ. He defines love. Biblically, love is defined by the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And then if we add Leviticus 19.18, which Jesus joined together and called the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus' love elaborated this command, elaborated what it means to love God and love your neighbor. He elaborated it by his unconditional, sacrificial, and cross-bearing life and death. It wasn't just a death for our sins. It was a death for our life and for a new life that we should live in the power of his love. This isn't lullaby love. This is gates of hell smashing love. Love marching out of the grave in the power of an earth-rattling resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection breath and spirit life whose first fruit is love. So there are words here that we don't like to hear. But we must remember, love wins. Not because it's a technique or strategy to personal success, but because love is a person who is Lord by virtue of a cross-shaped love with cosmic ramifications that John in his gospel called his glory For the incarnate Son of God laid aside the ornaments of his glory, his heavenly status and privilege, for a greater glory to demonstrate that God so loved the world. Sacrificial, redemptive, life-changing love. This is the authority of his lordship and the basis of new life. So there are words here we don't like. But it is not words that we are doing at all. It is living out this new life in love. Let's not read into these words we don't like our 21st century understanding shaped by bias or hurt. I heard the story of a daughter-in-law who thought her father-in-law, who was exiting the house in the evening all dressed up, she said, where are you going, Pop? He said, I'm going to the chiropractor. After he shut the door, she began to think, chiropractor, all dressed up. No chiropractor this late in the day. What's going on? 
she began to imagine that her father-in-law was having an affair. It crept into her whole view of things, and eventually she told her husband, and then she told her mother-in-law. Eventually it got back to her father-in-law, and they had a good laugh. His daughter-in-law heard him say, chiropractor, and out of that she spun an affair. But what he said was not chiropractor. It was choir practice. (laughs) We can do the same things with the words like submission and head. We can read in our contemporary or our personal feelings and ideas about what submission and head have to mean, or what it has meant, or it means to others, what it may represent. And in some cases, it may represent things that are entirely contrary to the Scripture. Some of them are emotionally charged because women today, among the statistics, are shocking. Among men who are nominal churchgoers, which means They have a little taste, a little awareness. Maybe their wives are deeply devoted to Christ, and they come along here and there with their wives. And among those men who will name themselves as Christians because they attend church a couple of times, abuse of their wives is higher than men who have nothing to do with church. And sometimes their mentality that justifies in their minds the abuse of their own wives is grounded in this passage because of the way they have chosen to interpret submission and head. But I ask you, what do the words kephale? And hufotasho mean to you? Those are the actual words that Paul wrote. We translate them head. We translate them to submit yourselves. But they are the words Paul wrote. And I want to talk about them over the next two Sundays with Shelley a little bit. And I hope you won't miss that. Because whenever the word is spoken, it's not... It's not just me speaking. There's life-giving things that we are presented through His Word. And I'm the first to be touched by it, moved by it, shaped by it, changed by it, because it's life-giving truth that we apprehend by faith. So I ask you to give me a generous hearing. I know it's not human nature. It's certainly not human. It's certainly human nature. I mean, for husbands, I know I've done this, to hear this passage and hear only what Paul says to wives, or for wives to hear only what Paul says to husbands. So I want to just say a couple of things about submission and headship, if you will to prepare us for the next couple of messages 
on the next couple of Sundays, Lord willing. I want to remind you that when the word hupotasso is uh, translated to submit yourself, it flows out of, and you can take down these things in your notes, it flows out of the first and dependent dependence upon the command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It flows out of verse 21 grammatically. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence, out of reverence, out of great respect, out of that biblical fear that isn't about cringing or what we think of as emotional fear, but out of giving place and priority to Jesus Christ. It flows right out of that. And there it is we are, as members of one body, members of each other in Christ, we are to submit ourselves to one another. And it is within that category that the wife is to continue this in her relationship with her husband. Paul shows, in fact, and this is my interpretation, he shows a sensitivity to wives for the very word submit, which is found in verse 21, is not repeated explicitly. In other words, it's not actually written when it's used of wives. It's used in verse 21 and it's used in verse 24 of the church. And yes, it is understood. The wife is to be submitting herself unto her husband. But it almost seems to me that in that Paul doesn't actually use the word, he is clearly showing the wife that what she is to do with respect to her husband flows out of verse 21 and verse 24 with respect to the church. Both have to do with the mutual and reciprocal attitude of the church to one another. And it's called, if you want to look it up, it's called ellipsis in grammar. And ellipsis means that whatever the verb submission meant in verse 21, it means the same in verse 22. And that's the same case in verse 24. In both instances, this obligation is under the larger heading of the church's response to Christ and not the demands of the Greco-Roman society. Huvatasho, the word that we translate submit, is something wives must do themselves. I hope you understood what I just said. It is something wives must do themselves. Paul does not tell husbands to insist their wives perform this duty. And that is clear in every use of the word, verse 21, twice in verse 24, with respect to the church and the wife. This word, submit, as we translate it, or it could be show respectful deference, has additional meaning in relation to the head. I want you to understand this. How is head used in this passage? It doesn't matter what 
variety of ways in which in history and in the contemporary literature and scene of the day, head is used. By the way, head is never used commonly. There is no entry for it in Liddell, Scott, and Jones, which is the largest lexicon or dictionary of ancient Greek. It's that thick. I have one in my office if you want to sometime come and hold it. And there's no entry there for head that this word is commonly used for ruler or boss. There are other words that are more commonly used in that way, and they are used in Greco-Roman writers who are not Christians about the marriage relationship, and the man should rule the wife. But it's not used here, and headship here is not used in that way. Some like to appeal to the fact, and this is very out of the way, with the source of a river, so that the man is like the source of this relationship. That's not the way it's used. It's used head and body, head and body. It's so clear. And the man is supposed to, as head, love his body as himself. And then Paul, he refers to Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 24, one flesh. The point is that as the head, the man is to care for his wife. He's to love her even as you in your head, if you're reasonable, sane, sensible, and even considered a little wise, are going to take care of yourself because you're yourself are one. Your head and your body are not separate. This shows the intimate, organic, if you will, relationship in which Paul conceives of the marriage. And he says this intimacy, just like the oneness of your body, the husband is accountable for the marriage. And I'll tell you how I take that. One day I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is the emphasis of verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. One day I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ, and he's going to hold me accountable for my marriage because I'm the head. Not that I get to call the shots, but because I'm the head. I'm responsible. Here at the church, I'm a leader among equals. I have to be the chief servant. I'm the senior pastor. Don't you get to call the shots? Don't you get to be the boss? Well, whatever authority I have is to enable and to beautify and to equip and to set free and enable, in the best sense of the word, people to experience the fullness of their powers and gifts within the body of Christ. Not for my per personal leisure. I have more responsibility, more accountability, not less. And that's the way it is, guys. You have to love. Why? 
because you are the Christ figure in your marriage. That means you have to be the better Christian. That means you have to be the senior servant. What did Jesus do with his disciples on the night he was betrayed? He took a towel, he wrapped it around his weight, took a basin of water, and began to wash their feet. Peter said, no, no way. You're the master. You're the Lord. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. That's beneath you. That's beneath you. Jesus said, if you do not let me wash your feet, Peter, you have no inheritance with me. That is powerful stuff. Peter changed his tune immediately. Not just my feet. Everything, all the way to my head. Why did Jesus make that such an issue? Because unless you and I realize that foot washing of someone who is not worthy, who is beneath us, if you will, and I'm not talking about husbands and wives here, I'm just anybody that you think is beneath you, just as Peter clearly saw himself as under the Lord and beneath the Master. And Jesus said, Peter, if you hold to that, you cannot have a share in me, an inheritance in me. You cannot be mine and I be yours. Why? Because that's the fundamental thing that sets apart the believer in Jesus Christ, that love goes to those lengths. Love is redemptive. Love is pursuing the purposes of God. And when we're living our lives in that pursuit, it alters the way we see ourselves and think about ourselves. And it brings us to a place of conversion. It brings us to that place of, oh, Lord, there I go again. That's not your heart. That's not your spirit. That's not your way. I'm sorry. And you get back into it. Do we always succeed? No. But it is the breath of our life. It is the work of his resurrection spirit in our lives. And it's the way we grow in Christ. More on this next week. Will you stand with me? I'll pray for us. If you want to come forward and pray, I hope you will. I think there have got to be some guys in here like me that had to go to the Lord with respect to the way we sometimes think about our marriage or maybe wives. Maybe it's to intercede for a friend or just because you've had the Lord so wrong, you saw a glimpse of who he really is, what he really came to do, and you want that in your own life. If so, we invite you to come. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, I'll be up here along with the pastors, uh, elders and spouses. If you'd like to pray with me or someone, we invite you to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. It is transforming because the reality of what it tells us is true in your resurrection. And we love you. We praise you. We want you to be Lord of our lives because when you are, love wins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.